Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 14. Last week in verses 7 through 12, Jesus takes some of that precious little time that he has left with his 11 apostles to further explain to them his oneness with the Father, their God. In verses 10 through 11, he introduces this idea of mutual indwelling, that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. And I can't take it any further than that. that that's such a mysterious thing to realize that they are the same essence and yet they are two distinct persons. They're sharing the same space, so to speak, but they are also in one another. They indwell one another. Wherever the Father is, the Lord Jesus, or the Son is. Wherever the Lord Jesus is, the Father is. And then in verse 12, the Lord Jesus makes this startling promise to them that all who believe in him will do the works that he does and even greater works. And we saw last week that that word greater doesn't mean greater in kind because as we know you can't do greater things or, or qualitatively more impressive things than raising someone from the dead walking on water these sorts of things no the word means extending in space in all directions so what he's saying there is those who believe in him are going to be spreading the gospel in all directions they're going to be going in places and preaching in places that he never visited. Remember, the Lord Jesus physically was restricted to what we would call Palestine and the immediately surrounding borderlands of Palestine. He never traveled more than he never traveled more than a hundred miles in any one direction. He says, now though, you're going to the uttermost parts of the earth with the gospel. So let's see what we can learn this evening from his upper room teaching to these terribly confused, sad, perplexed disciples. John chapter 14, beginning with verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another, the Legacy Standard Bible says, advocate. We'll, we'll deal with that word in just a minute. That he may be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And now, Lord Jesus, we depend on you by the power of this same Spirit to give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and to give us ears to hear that we might see you for who you are. And we ask this because you are faithful. Amen. Verse 13, let's face it, sounds startling. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. It sounds like carte blanche. It sounds like an utterly open-ended invitation to ask for anything 
your depraved heart and flesh desire. Lord, in Jesus' name, please give me a Maserati. Lord, in Jesus' name, please deposit $10 million in my checking account after taxes. Yeah. It sounds like an invitation to use the Lord Jesus like a genie. Mm. Or if you're more of the tender, gentle type, it sounds like you could just say, Lord, in Jesus' name, please give us world peace now. So whatever your fallen heart and flesh desire, just tag on in Jesus' name at the end of it, and you've got it. Uh, Whenever someone says to me, I wish, and I listen to whatever it is they're wishing for, and I say, yeah, I wish I was young, rich, and handsome. Yeah. So maybe I could just pray, Father, in Jesus' name, make me young, rich, and handsome. Now you know better than that. In my name. When Jesus says pray in my name, it means essentially two things. The second coming out of the first. In the first place, it is pray in my place, in my stead, as an ambassador. The same concept as an ambassador. An ambassador represents the nation that sent him. In the case of the United States, an ambassador of the United States represents the president of the United States. So when he goes to a foreign country, he has no freedom to just say whatever he wants to say, to demand whatever he wants to demand. He has to take his instructions from the president. His liberty to speak is only what the president has told him he is to say. He is limited by the will, the revealed will of the president. So to ask in my name, therefore, means that we are free to ask in the, real, the revealed will and character of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means. So, where do we learn the revealed will and character of our Lord Jesus Christ? And if anybody gets it wrong, you flunk. Obviously, it's from the scriptures. That's the only place we learn it. And once we've learned his revealed will, then we are free. He gives us absolute open carte blanche to pray for that revealed will. Whatever you ask that I want, whatever you ask that you know I want, and you'll get it. First John, same author, First John, Chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 puts it like this. This is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And since we know he hears us, whatever we ask, we know we have the petition we desired from him. So, we are invited, we are urged to come and ask for anything that is in line with our Lord Jesus' revealed will. And he says, I'll do it. That's the general principle. But we're in this text. And specifically in this text, (coughs) excuse me, he's referring to verse 12. To the greater works 
that he says we will do in his name. So he's telling us concerning these greater works, whatever you ask so that you can perform and you can execute these greater works, whatever you ask for in presenting my gospel and spreading my gospel and building up one another in Christ and making disciples throughout the world whatever you ask for and that that I will do so it's not a blank check to ask whatever our flesh wants he's not a genie but it's his power that's promised to us to do the greater works that he said we're going to do but there's something else here that would shock the 11 apostles if they not been paying close attention to what he said back in verses 10 and 11. Look at what he says. Whatever you ask in my name, <clears throat> this will I do. We would expect him to say, whatever you ask in my name, this will the Father do. I mean, after all, he instructed us in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9 to pray to our Father who is in heaven. How should we pray? Pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven. And in chapter 15 and verse 16, you're right there at chapter 15, find verse 16. Look what he says. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would abide or remain. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And then in chapter 16, verse 23. And on that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. But here he says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. That the Father will be glorified in the Son. And and then he repeats it in verse 14. If you ask anything, I will do it. What's going on? Remember in his divine wisdom, the Lord Jesus is taking these precious few minutes that he has with his disciples before he's going to be arrested in order to teach them about God. Of all the things that you and I may have thought of to teach someone shortly before we are to be executed what the Lord Jesus chooses to teach his disciples is the doctrine of God the doctrine of the Trinity now he doesn't use the word Trinity of course I mean it's not been Tertullian hasn't uh, coined the word Trinity yet we still have to wait for a few hundred years for that to happen but he's teaching us the truth of the Trinity think about this he only has a couple of hours left and he takes that time to teach his disciples about the relationship that he has with the Father and with the Holy Spirit 
apparently this is going to be incredibly important to them in the days ahead. (laughs) But he's coming at it from all different angles. Look at verse 11. We're back in John 14, verse 11. He says that he and the Father are one because they are mutually indwelling. Now, I'm going to say this probably a couple more times this evening. Please keep in mind that the the 11 faithful apostles' heads are spinning. They're expecting within a couple of days, maybe at the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread at at the latest, that Jesus is going to be crowned King of Kings. That Jesus is going to be crowned Messiah. That Jesus is going to be recognized even by those hateful priests that he is God's Messiah. That he's going to drive out the Romans. That he's going to expand the kingdom all the way to the Euphrates. That the golden age of Israel that was prophesied in the Old Testament is going to come. And they're going to be at the head of the government. That's what they're expecting. And he's telling them, I'm going away. You, what? You, you're going away. No, in a few days you have to be crowned. How can you go away? And we can't come? I mean, it's bad enough that you're going away, but at least we ought to be able to go with you wherever you are. I mean, you're our life. And you're going back to the Father's house. So their heads are spinning from this. Everything's turned upside down. And then he says to them, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You see, he's trying to teach them that he and the Father are one. They're mutually indwelling. Their heads are spinning. And you, you can imagine, if you're knocked off balance, it's hard to learn something new. But in chapter 5 and verse 19, he told them that he does the Father's works. In chapter 6, verse 38, he tells them that he does the Father's will. But then in 14.10, right here, he says, But the Father abiding in me does these works. And then go to chapter 12, back up to chapter 12, verse 44. This will sound really familiar. He who believes in me does not believe in him, but does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees the one who sent me. So to believe in you is not to believe in you, but to believe in the Father. And to see you is not to see you, but to see the Father. And he just told Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And all this is getting dumped on them. I mean, while their heads are still spinning, that he's going away. And in verse 16, he's going to start teaching them about his relationship to the Holy Spirit. But we haven't gotten there yet. So back up to his relationship to the Father. Here in verses 13 and 14... His emphasis is on that relationship with the Father. Their oneness. Pray to the Father and I will do it. Because 
The Son is sovereign God who answers the, prayer, the prayers of his people just like the Father is sovereign God who answers the prayers of his people. And the Father's people are those who have faith in his Son. The Father and the Son are so inseparably one that when you pray to the Father and your prayers are answered who is it that answers that prayer is it the father or is it the son and the answer is yes they are so inseparably one that when you pray and the Lord Jesus answers your prayer for those words that you need to speak the gospel to that person that you've been wanting to speak the gospel to and the opportunity has finally arisen and you're there and as you're about to enter in this conversation you pray in your heart Lord give me the words that I need to speak and he gives you those words and you glorify him later and you thank him later for giving you those words. Thank you, my Lord, that you gave me what I needed to say. The Father is glorified in that because the Father and the Son mutually indwell each other. So whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son because we're one. You see what he's doing? Now they're not getting it yet. Pentecost hasn't happened. I mean it's still flowing right over their heads. But and note one other thing here. What Jesus is teaching us here. And, and this two little verses. Frees us from getting wrapped around the axle of which person of the Trinity we're to pray to. Now we know that the Lord Jesus himself said to pray to the Father who is in heaven. And so that's the normal way we pray. Father. Our Father. But go to Acts chapter 7. Keep your place there in John 14. Go to Acts chapter 7. I'm not contradicting what Jesus said. Please hear me. Acts chapter 7, verse 59. This is Stephen. Remember, Stephen was one of the deacons, proto-deacons, who was filled with the Holy Spirit. He worked miracles. Okay. They went on stoning Stephen as he was calling out and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord. Now remember, in the New Testament, whenever, especially Paul or Luke is writing and they talk about God he's usually referring to the Father usually referring to the Father whenever he says Lord he's always referring to the Lord Jesus Christ unless he specifically says otherwise so he's just cried out to Lord Jesus receive my spirit now he says Lord and the implication there is it's the Lord Jesus that he sees standing at the right hand of the Father do not hold this sin against them he's praying to Jesus And in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14 at the end of that letter the Apostle Paul addresses all three persons of the Trinity in his prayer. So don't get wrapped around the axle. 
if in our praying it seems appropriate to petition the Lord Jesus, do it. In other words, the Father is not insulted, nor is he sinned against. If in certain instances in our praying, we ask from the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus here gives us grounds for doing that. Normally we'll pray to the Father. But you may hear me in prayer meeting, switching between the Lord Jesus and the Father, depending on what I'm asking for. So that's enough of that. But also I want you to consider one other thing. When Jesus is saying, whatever you ask in my name, and in verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I mean, he's gotten very specific there. You remember back in in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, when the Lord Jesus is, is teaching us how to pray. He says, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven. This is Matthew chapter 6. This is the very beginning of his ministry. He has not yet performed any of the public miracles that are going to be verifying his outrageous claims to be one with the Father. To be the Son of God. Eventually, even in John 8, to be Yahweh himself incarnate. He's not done anything to prove that. So it would have been more than tactless for him to say, pray like this, our Father, or pray to me. It might have ended his whole ministry right there on the spot before he ever got off the ground. But once he's established who he is by what he's done, and by an audible voice from the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. Now he's got grounds. They're prepared for him to say something radical like this. Now, back to John 14. Following immediately after this amazing promise that he himself will answer their prayers for greater works, for more experience, of opportunities and the spread of the gospel he says in verse 15 if you love me you will keep my commandments if you love me if you love me you will keep or literally guard my commandments Uh, the word here again is tereo Uh, there's two words that are normally used for guard or keep in the New Testament, philoso and tereo. Both of them mean to keep guard, like a a guard in a watchtower. Tereo, though, it it has more of of the implication of guarding a treasure. So if you keep or you guard this treasure I've given you, If you love me, you will guard my commandments. Hmm. And this is the proof that a disciple loves the Lord Jesus. Matter of fact, this is the proof of whether or not somebody is a disciple of the Lord Jesus or not. It's whether or not we treasure his commandments. Now, since we're still opposed by our flesh, we're not glorified yet. That's not a shock to anybody. We stumble and we sin. And sometimes we sin willfully. We stupidly sin willfully. 
But even when we do sin, because we treasure his commandments, we repent. We come back. We get cleansed. And we begin following him again. Because we treasure his commandments. And since the eleven know that they love him. I mean, they would not have followed him for three years. Through all of the threats and everything else that they've had to go against. And especially now. With all of the plots of the the leaders of the people against the Lord Jesus. And they know about this. They would not have followed him for all these three years. In the face of excommunication. If they did not love him. So they know they love him. And knowing that, this comforts them. We know we love you. And even though we don't quite understand what you're saying when you say, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. We're going we're gonna to treasure that. We're going to observe that. We're going to use that. That helps to calm their turmoil of their hearts during this evening. Now look at verses 16 through 18. Remember what he's doing. He's teaching them the Trinity. He's teaching them the nature of God. And now he moves from the Father to the Holy Spirit. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another legacy standard Bible says advocate. It's the word parakletos. Parakletos. It's it's paraclete. One called alongside. That's what it literally means. It's One word can't adequately describe what this word means. So it's translated comforter, it's translated helper, it's translated advocate, it can even be translated teacher. Someone who is called to your assistance, someone who's called alongside. He says, I'm going to give you another paraclete, another one like me. The word here is alon. The word uh, uh, another. One just like me. The implication there is. Jesus is the first paraclete. I mean he's the first advocate. That intercedes for us. He's the first helper. He's the first comforter. He's the first teacher. But he's going away. And he is going to ask the father. To send another Comforter, teacher, advocate, helper, just like me. I'm leaving you, at least for a while, because he's already promised them back in in the beginning of this chapter, that at some point he's going to come back and take them to the Father's house to be with him forever. But for a while they're going to be deprived of his presence. But he says, I'm going to ask the Father to send you another one just like me who will be with you how long? Forever. Forever. He said, who is this? And he tells us, verse 17, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. The world doesn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. But you know him because he abides with you. He abides with you. He abides with you. Present tense. 
He abides with you already. He is currently abiding with you. What do you mean? He abides with you and me. Remember at his baptism? The Holy Spirit came down on him like in the form of a dove. Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You can also say, he who has seen me has seen the Holy Spirit. Mm. And he will be with you forever. I'm going to leave, but he's going to be here with you. Not with you. In you. See, I'm with you. I'm with you here now. And if you go to the bathroom and I leave, I will not be with you anymore. And when I go away, I won't be with you anymore. And I can only be with you in one place at one time. Now, I know I'm getting into chapter 16, but just tolerate it right now. I can only be with you here now. When we were in Samaria at Sychar, and you guys went down into Sychar to get lunch, and I was up at the well, I wasn't with you. We were separated. If you wanted to ask me anything or if you needed me, you're out of luck. I'm not here. But this helper, this comforter, this teacher, who is just like me, he is going to be in you, and he's going to be in you forever. Wherever you go, he's going to be there. You can't and you won't ever be separated from him. Ever. Jesus has laid so much on them in just a couple of minutes. And their poor heads are spinning. And he's just said, I'm reminding you again for the first time, maybe you're hearing it for the first time, after I've said it so many times, that I and the Father are one. We mutually indwell each other. I'm telling you that if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's a shock. And now I'm telling you that I'm going away, but the Holy Spirit himself is coming to be in you. You see, this is tearing their little world apart. This is upsetting their apple cart. This is knocking everything down that they've been expected. Everything they thought they knew about him, they're realizing, we don't know you at all. You remember we talked last week in the second service about Matthew 8.37 when on the Sea of Galilee the storm came up and Jesus, with a command, made the storm stop. And what did the twelve in the boat say? What manner of man is this? Who are you? And that's what they're thinking now. They need to digest this. He's going away. He's going away to prepare a place for us. They don't understand that means the cross, but that's what he's talking about. And then he's going away to the Father's house. That'll be after the resurrection and the ascension. But at some point you're coming back to take us with you that where you are, there we may be also. And seeing you is seeing the Father. 
you and the Father mutually indwell each other. When we pray to the Father, you will answer. And before you come back to take us to yourself, that where you are there, we may be also, you're giving us another one just like you. You're giving us the Holy Spirit who is just like you. And you have been with us, but he's going to be in us. He's going to indwell us. So let's make sure we got this right. The Holy Spirit is exactly like you in every detail except he doesn't have his own body. We are going to be his bodies that he inhabits. And Jesus is sitting there thinking, and if you haven't connected the dots yet about my relationship to the Holy Spirit, verse 18, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. But who has he just been talking about? The Holy Spirit. But you just said you're leaving. And you're sending the Holy Spirit. And now you're saying you will come to us. Oh. So when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us, that's you in us forever. Hear what I say and don't hear what I don't say. The Holy Spirit doesn't replace the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the Lord Jesus in spirit. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of the Father and the spirit of the Lord Jesus himself. So that as Jesus is one with the Father, he is one with the Holy Spirit. And Romans 8, 9 says it very directly. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Holy Spirit, all the same. So what's the conclusion? Our Lord's demonstrating here his tender compassion on these poor, befuddled, head-spinning, eleven faithful disciples whom he knows are going to abandon him in a few hours. And he's entrusted the spread of the gospel throughout the whole world into their 11 hands. And they're going to do it. And he's telling them why they're going to do it and how they're going to do it. But he's, he's comforting them. He's having compassion on them now in all their confusion. He kept warning them all throughout his ministry. Over and over. I should have gone back and counted all the places in the Gospels where he tells them, we're going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried. They're going to crucify me. After three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. And then they're thinking, who's greatest among us? Right over their heads. All those times he's been teaching them and they've not been hearing it because of their preconceptions. Their preconceptions. This is what Messiah must be. This is what Messiah will do. 
And so if Messiah says something other than what we expect him to be or do, we just we, we just screen it out. We just filter it out. Now, with just hours later, he bluntly tells them, everything you've anticipated is rubbish. I'm leaving. But the Father is going to send my own Holy Spirit to indwell you. That Holy Spirit is going to be me, myself, returning to live in you. And I will live in you forever. Now in 16.7, he's going to tell them it's actually better for him to leave than for him to stay. But we're not going there tonight. So what about us on this side of the resurrection? This is our Lord. This is who he is. This is our God. Our God is one. And that one God in the person of the Son has come to us. And he has looked us in the face. And he's talked to us. And he's instructed us. And he's given, he's proven his love for us. He has loved us to the end. And then he's given himself up for us. And he's taken all of our sins on himself. And he's fully paid for all the sins that we owe. He's paid the penalty that we owe. He's raised himself from the dead. He's ascended to the Father. He has sent his Holy Spirit to us. He has, by his Holy Spirit, convinced us, convicted us of the truth of this fairy tale gospel because let's face it when you're lost and the Holy Spirit's not open your eyes this is a fairy tale the Bhagavad Gita makes more sense than this Quran makes more sense than this this is God he opened our eyes he showed us the truth he showed us himself he converted us (laughs) and he came to live in us And he is living in us. And he will never leave us. And he will never forsake us. And throughout all of eternity in heaven, he will be living in us. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Stand with me, please. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. And we're dismissed.